Welcome to the Fustel Fit Podcast with your host, Nicola Fustel. Straight talking, body positive coach and personal trainer. Nicola brings you your weekly guide to finding real health and fitness and to live the life you deserve. Hello and welcome to the Fustel Fit Health and Fitness Podcast and live radio show on 91.8 Hayes FM. I'm Nicola Fuster, your host, and today I speak to Chris Tuck, who is the founder of the charity Survivors of Abuse. Survivors of Abuse's primary purpose is to empower the adult victim or survivor to transform their lives holistically through mindset, nutrition and fitness. So we do discuss some uncomfortable topics, and if it's something that you find triggering or if you're affected by it, please check out the show notes of where you can get support and advice. So I first met Chris Tuck at the Wife conference which is the women in fitness empowerment conference run by Jacqueline Hooten and I had the pleasure of hearing her speak and ever since then really I just I've always wanted to have you on the radio or the podcast but I just wasn't really brave enough to be honest why not I know it's just I always get a little bit nervous when I speak to people and I I, something that I've always wanted to cover that but obviously as you know I sent you my um my blog that I did telling people about my own journey and it's something yeah. that I hadn't really done before so I think I just wasn't really ready to have that conversation and that that's fine yeah you have to be ready yeah but I really appreciate you being here and I hope that your story is going to inspire people so um if, if you don't mind can we just dive straight in and if you could just tell us a bit about your background your story and how you got to be where you are today yeah that's fine do you want the short version <laughs> um Okay, so where to start? Um, my name's Chris Tuck. Um, I was born Christine Oliver. Um, as a child, I was born into a family, a normal family. I had um, two brothers and one sister. My mum left when um, I was seven um, because of domestic violence and affairs. Um, leaving me at the age of seven really to be the mum to my two brothers and my sister. Um, My dad um, got with uh, a lady four doors down from where we were living and she had at that time seven daughters. Um, To cut a long story short, um, my dad abused some of the stepsisters and my sister and was um, convicted of paedophilia and put away in 1981. When he was put away, my stepmom continued her abuse of us. She starved us. Um, she didn't clothe us properly. She, uh, the physical abuse was quite horrendous. And I won't go into detail yeah. because it's part of a police case at the moment. Um, and... My mum at this time found out where we was living and she was trying to gain custody of us through the court system and she eventually did win custody of us. Um, So we went to live with my mum whilst my dad was still in prison. My mum had remarried in this time and we had a half-sister who was 18 months old and um, we thought that we had turned a corner and that life would be pretty peachy from there on in. Unfortunately, my mum had gone from one bad relationship to another and my stepdad turned out to be an alcoholic, um, uh, a very controlling man, abusive towards my mum. So my mum was in another domestic violence relationship. And of course, as children, we were seeing all of this um, day in, day out. And we were also subject to a lot of mental and physical abuse. Um, my stepdad also also sorry sexually abused me and my sister and again I can't go into details because it's part of a police case Um, and um, unfortunately my mum is still with him 30 years on so where I left well we all left home um, around our 16th birthday so my brother left first then I left and then we uh, helped the other siblings leave home one by one and to to safety, really. Um, And I then spent the next, since I left home at 15, the next 15 years of my life trying to make something of myself, trying to shrug off the, all the badness and all the, 
all the ugliness and all the shame and the guilt and just trying to shake it all away just by creating a new identity for myself. Um, so everybody on the outside saw me as very career minded and very single minded. And I often got called the ice lady, the ice maiden, because I, I didn't laugh. I didn't socialize. I didn't um, do all the normal things uh, 16, 17, 18 year old um, would do um, when I was at college. I was just serious minded, one track minded about getting qualified, um, about earning money, about getting a roof over my head. You know, all the things that people at that age don't think about. But that's all I wanted because I knew that I wanted to have children. And I also knew that, that my children would never, ever go through what I went through. And in order for me in my head to bring children into the world, I needed stability, so a roof over my head. I needed a few quid in the bank, you know, not loads, but not on the breadline. Um, I needed to be able to feed and clothe my children. So that was my goal. And that drove me day in, day out to, to get to where I was at that time. Um, at the age of 28, I qualified as a chartered management accountant. So it took me 10 years because um, I was working full time and studying in the evenings at weekends. Uh, I also um, uh, went out with this particular boy when I was um, 15 and a half. And I'm still with him 32 years later. Um, so I had a lot of stability in my life from that point of view. Um, at the age of 28, I got pregnant with my son and had my son. And that was the start of the decline in my mental health. Because when I had my son, it struck me how vulnerable children are and how could anybody, not just one set of parents, well, how could they treat us like we were treated? And it was, it, it really struck home with me and it really destabilised my mental health. And um, it wasn't overnight. It took 18 months for me to really um, decline in a way that when I was at work one day, the pressures that I was under at the time were absolutely huge. And I just had a breakdown at work. Um, and then that was my first sort of like um, lot of counselling that I, I had at the age of 30. Um, I was given six weeks of therapy, um, which is not therapy. But at that time, this is what I was given six weeks yeah. of therapy um, where I just sat there and cried my eyes out. And I didn't know what I was crying for, but I would just cried my eyes out because everything around me was just seemed to be falling to bits it wasn't you know I still had a roof over my head I still had a job I was married and I had a child so life should have been rosy life should have been happy life should have been you know absolutely a ball and a blast but it wasn't because I had all of these un, all of these unresolved issues and feelings come to the forefront um at that time, I knew that something had to change and I didn't know what. So I looked to see what else that I could do um, because I knew that I wanted another child. I knew that my health wasn't in the right place. I knew that I couldn't go back to um, doing accountancy 12 to 14 hours a day because my son was in full-time nursery and I thought, you had this child to spend time with it, but you're not. All you're doing is putting him in the nursery all day and stressing morning noon night about childcare, about picking him up you know all of those things that us mums have to worry about um so i knew something had to change so then i retrained as a fitness instructor in 2003 um four months after having my daughter at that just, time um, just go back a little bit though do you, sorry like, do you think that um the reason why you didn't notice or you didn't really um, have any mental health issues until you had your child was because like you were feeling numb for a number of years do you think that is is that the case with you and, and is that the case that happens with a lot of people like you have this post-traumatic stress that happens but it's not immediately after the events of what's been going on in your life perhaps it can happen years ahead in the future I think with me I was so happy about being away from the um, badness in my home life like in my childhood home, but I felt free and I felt empowered. And I knew that my whole future, my whole life, my whole being was about everything that I could possibly do. So it was all in my hands. My future was in my hands, you know, and I couldn't make a worse 
job of it than the four adults that I had in my life previously and as I started seeing the fruits of all my labor like getting promoted at work um like passing the exams as and um earning more money as I started seeing the fruits of all my hard effort I just put more and more effort into that so because I was so concentrated and so focused on the end goal, which for me was having children of my own, I sort of blocked off everything that had happened in the past because it wasn't, it wouldn't have served me at the time. Um, so I, I believe I was lucky in that um, perspective because I was able to block my brain down and just go after all the good things that I felt that I was um experiencing at the time you know like I said the job promotions the the increase in salaries and all of that so I had lots of good stuff happening for me whereas my some of my siblings were just stuck in this rut where they they there was nothing good happening for them it was just they were just stuck in 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 their um thoughts and their feelings does that make sense yeah um so when and I think I think because I was so full on as well in those 15 years from 15 to 30 and I was so focused on my end game um I didn't have I didn't sit around and think but I was impacted because I was bulimic I exercised um more than what I would call normal um, and that is how I controlled it all secretly. So my anger that I had in me, I controlled through exercise and high levels of stress that I, I suffered um, when I was doing exams, for example, then my bulimia would increase as well. So it's only when you look back at stuff that you can see clearly what's happening. But when you're in it, you don't really think about it. Yeah. Um, and certainly so, with exercise and um, eating disorders, we often do them or, yeah. or have them as a way of getting control over our life because there are so many things that are out of our control. And exactly. we feel like if we control our own bodies, then we have some kind of control over things. Yeah, I agree with you completely. Um, so bulimia for me was a release. Um, and I didn't do it every day. And I could go months and months without being bulimic. But re in real high times of high stress, then, you know, it came on. Um, and again, when I did purge, it was a sense of relief. And it was a sense of um, that I was in control. So Nicola, you're exactly right. That, that, that was it for me. It might not be the same for everybody, but that was it for me. Um, and I was quite ashamed of being bulimic as well. I, I would never talk to anyone about it. But looking back on it, it was a way of just, it was a release, a relief. Um, yeah, sorry. Do you think sometimes yeah. that the feelings of shame and guilt that we have over eating disorders are maybe from like the abuse that you suffered as a child? I, I haven't really given it that much thought, but from the abuse that you do suffer as a child, obviously there's shame, blame and guilt all tied up in with that. Um, so, Again, I think it probably magnifies it, um, but I don't really know the psychology and the links between the two, to be honest. And you call yourself a survivor of abuse now. When did you go? I from, do, yeah. When did you go from being a victim to a survivor? Well, for me, the day I walked out of my home, my family home at 15, I was a survivor because I'd survived what was going on on a daily basis in my home. And I left it all behind and now I'd survived that. And then anything from that day forth was all down to me, which was very, very scary. But as I said to you, the um, the relief of being my own person and not being told what to do, when to do it, when to do it. And um, the constant threat of being hit and all of that that goes on in domestic violence relationships and all the mental control and all of that. I was no longer under any of that. So I thought, big sigh of relief. But at the same time, to the outside world, I didn't want them knowing anything about my background because I didn't want them to judge me on where I came from. I wanted to show people that I wasn't what they might think of me, like scum from a council estate, scum because um, 
you let things happen to you, scum because you couldn't afford to eat properly or dress properly. Do you understand? And ha- had you ever heard of those things or is it just something that you thought in your head? I, I, was, I heard it um, because at school we were bullied because of how we smelled, how we looked and um, how we, we wore around people. So we, we got called names and bullied at school for how we were portrayed as in the clothes we were wearing and um, how we smelt and stuff. So it was everything that was done at home was reinforced at school. Yeah. So then when you faced adult life and obviously you left there, you went to college or university and started to be an accountant. How were your relationships with people? Strained. Um, I kept myself to myself. I didn't trust anybody. Um, The few friends that I did have, um, they, I trusted them to a certain extent, but I was I was always wary of any relationships. I always was able to befriend um, females um, really easily, but not males because I just didn't trust them at all. Um, I didn't like anybody walking behind me. I couldn't have conversations about anything of a sexual nature. Um, think. I just kept myself to myself. People learn what they needed to know and everything else I kept to myself. Mm-hmm. And so you kept everything to yourself to a certain extent and obviously yeah. now you're a public speaker, you've written books yeah. and this is your livelihood now. Mm-hmm. So when did you change from keeping everything to yourself to being able to speak out about things? Okay, so going just back to the story quickly, when I was a... Uh, after the breakdown, I changed, um, become um, a fitness instructor. And then that was my first sort of um, experience of having to stand up in front of people and speaking. Okay, it's fitness and you're instructing fitness, but it was my first time of actually getting really out of my comfort zone and standing up in front of people. And I remember on my ETM um, uh, training, when we had to... Um, teach our first 10 minute warm up I just stood there and burst into tears so I thought after that people came up and trying to hug me and I'm pushing them away because I don't hug people because it's my private space Um, but people were very kind to me so after I had embarrassed myself completely in front of class of what 25 30 people um, things didn't seem so bad after that it was easier to get up and stand up in front of people so um, when I was, uh, when did I write the book? In 2012, so how was how old was I? Um, God, I can't even work out how old I was. 42. When I was 42, wrote the first book, which is my autobiography. So let me just backtrack a little bit. I worked at the Priory Hospital, which is a psychiatric hospital. I was the accountant there um, for about three or four years. Then I started... Um, Uh, seeing that the patients inside the hospital um, didn't have fitness in there. And and as I said, I just become a fitness instructor. So I asked if I could introduce um, Pilates into the hospital to to help with depression. And they grabbed it with both hands. And so we introduced Pilates into the hospital, uh, which I was in charge of. And then I became the fitness therapist of the hospital so I was doing accountancy part-time and fitness therapist part-time, but it slowly took on a life of its own. I now slowly sort of started leaving the accountancy behind and becoming more embroiled into the fitness side of things. Um, and that led me on to learning about nutrition, learning about um, uh, biomechanics, learning about um, just everything to do with health and wellness. And because I was speaking to a lot of patients about their stories and their experiences, I actually thought that my story holds a lot of power. It holds a lot of, it connects a lot of people. It's got a lot of crossover for a lot of people. So I thought, how can I help more people understand that this thing called abuse that they're impacted by is not their fault. It's not their shame. It's not their guilt. They're not to blame. How can I do that on a bigger platform? And I thought, you know what? I'm going to be brave and I'm going to... um find someone to help me write my autobiography. And that is really the the birthing of what I do now. And um, that took 18 months to come to fruition. And Karen Lang helped me with that. 
and um and then it's just snowballed from there really i've just got um the more you say that um you want to help other people to know that it's not their shame and it's not their guilt and it's not their fault but how when did you discover that for yourself did you ever have therapy that helped you or did anybody speak to you and and tell you that it's okay and it, it wasn't your fault what happened no, I always knew that, Nicola. Always knew that it wasn't my fault. I always knew that, really, deep down, it wasn't. The, the adult's actions in my life was nothing to do with me. Um, but when I was at school and my dad was in prison for paedophilia, it was in the local paper, and there was um, some kids in the playground and they were going, your dad's a paedophile, and I didn't know what that, mer- that word meant. And... That was when I felt huge shame that my father was this bad word and and was I really responsible for what he did. But deep down, I knew I was never responsible. But at that level, um, conscious level, I did wonder if it was my fault. Um, But then I had friends and I went round their houses and I saw the life they lived and I saw the love that they were getting from their parents and the food that was put on the table for them. So I knew that what was happening in my house was not normal. I knew there was more to life than what I was experiencing. So I did know deep down, I knew it was not my fault. But when did someone tell me that? Um, Books I read, I read books. I didn't, the therapy that I had was that six weeks of where I was crying. So I was never taught that in therapy, but I, I am an avid reader and I always I, I always had my nose in a book and I started reading other people's autobiographies that had been for abuse, like The Boy Called It, um, like Flowers in the Attic, which was not a true story, but it, it showed um, uh, fictional accounts of abuse and it talked about shame, blame and uh, things like that. So I learned stuff from books. Is that what made you want to write a book? No, not really. What made me wanted to write the book was the fact that when I was working in the Priory Hospital, um, I was hearing all of these experiences and I thought, actually, there's a lot of people in here that haven't gone through half the stuff that I've gone through and I'm still standing. Why am I still standing and why are they so impacted? And I thought, and when I shared parts of my experiences with these people in the hospital it made them feel better because there was a lot of empathy and sympathy going on there was a lot of shared experience and it made it made both of us whoever I was having a conversation with it made both of us feel like we weren't alone and I thought you know what there's not a lot out there really for people um, to show them a how they can come out of what they've gone through there's a lot of this has happened to me and this is how I've been impacted but there wasn't um many books that I've come across that sort of like showed that a route out um showed that you could help yourself you could empower yourself and there was a healthier way of doing this so that's what I really wanted to get across and that was the main reason that I wrote the book so your book, Through the Eyes of the Child. Yeah. Um, how did you feel, though, having to relive all the moments of your childhood? Um, it was, I thought that it would be easy. I thought it would be like a walk in the park. Um, I found it extremely hard. I tried to write it by myself, but I ended up in tears all the time, every time I sat down and tried to write it. So then I got in contact with, I said, Karen Lang, who's also a Pilates instructor, Um, but she's also a journalist. Um, So I thought, what if I can write it down or speak it or tell it to somebody and they write it so that I I can then recover from what I'm saying? So that's what I did. So Karen and I would meet up or I would record or I would write down um, whatever it, it was that we were talking about at the time and then she would like put it all together for me. So she, and then whilst she was doing that, I was having um, oh what's the word? I was having therapy myself um, for dealing with all the emotions and feelings that were coming up as a result of writing the book. So I was sort of healing whilst I was writing the book. Mm-hmm. Do you think just that the act of writing a book can be quite therapeutic for people? 
Yeah, I think so. From from my own personal experience and from from everybody that I've spoken to who are not writing books, but like writing down their feelings, their thoughts and their feelings, it's it's a way of getting all of the unexpressed emotions and feelings out of your head and down on paper. And even now, um, when I speak to therapy friends of mine, they say that one of the biggest things that you can do for yourself is to try and let go of these thoughts and these feelings. So if you're able to put pen to paper and then you can sort of like almost just burn that piece of paper or rip it up into shreds or or squeeze it up and stamp on it. And it's almost really therapeutic and cathartic to do that. So getting it down on paper or speaking it out in public, you're speaking about what's happened. What do you think mm-hmm. stops people from speaking up? Uh, it's so complex, so complex. Um, I spoke up several times. So I spoke up when I was nine, reported sexual abuse to the police that I um, suffered outside of the family. I spoke up through stories at school and my teacher told me not to tell lies. I spoke up when I was throughout when the social workers were coming to see us. We told them exactly what was going on, but they didn't want to hear it. And after a while, when you do speak up and no one is hearing or believing you, you shut down and you become silent about it because what is the point and I think there is a lot of that I think that children do speak out but people are missing the signs or they don't want to hear it when you do speak up as well and say like it goes to the police and the police get involved and social services gets involved it can break up families so perpetrators of abuse keep you silent by saying if you tell anyone your mum will um i will go to jail and your mum won't like you and you're going to care so there's a lot of manipulation by perpetrators of abuse to keep you silent um and all and also you get some people get really scared because it's almost like the the devil better the devil you know than the devil you don't so um will life actually be better if i'm outside you know if if i do tell someone and i get taken into a care home would life actually be better so sometimes that keeps people silent There are so many, many reasons, but I think it's the power and control that the perpetrator has over the victim that keeps people silent for a a long, long time. But there is so much power in you actually speaking up and somebody sitting there in the audience, like myself when I very first heard you speak, although it was a long time till it became my turn to speak, it was Mm -hmm. still a tiny seed that was planted. And then the more I heard other people talk out about things, I thought, maybe it's okay to speak out about things because like you said obviously there's the shame and guilt over it but also that people won't believe you depending on your story so i think it really does actually give you a lot of power when you do speak because you help so many people and i totally totally agree with you um so i thought that i'd get a backlash over sharing my story um through the book um but i got nothing but support and well done, and you're brave, and you're this and you're that. I don't feel that I'm brave. Um, I was very concerned about what people would say when I started sharing everything, warts and all. Um, but it has empowered me. It's opened a lot of doors for me. It's enabled me to become really strong, um, not embarrassed or ashamed about what happened. What happened, happened. It can't be changed. The only thing you can do is either be a victim for the rest of your life or grab it by the horns, shake it and get on with your life and make your life count for something. And that's what I decided to do, making my life count for something. Because why would you go through all of that and and basically let you destroy you on a day-to-day basis but you've got to be in a position where you can meet it head on and feel that you can speak up so I think if you've got a safe network around you and you've got someone that you can truly trust then your time when you can speak out will come if that's what you choose to do yeah and um what sort of response have you had from the book um, as I said, lots of people have been contacting me, other victims and survivors, saying um, you've given me strength, like you, like when you heard me speak, 
it's given me strength to tell my truth um, or I can never tell my truth but I know I'm not alone and I know I'm not responsible it's and it's it's enabled me also to um, speak to professionals to make them understand about the impact of childhood abuse not not just sexual abuse but mental and physical abuse on the child the adolescent and the adult and how they should respond accordingly to victims and survivors and understand what we go through on a day-to-day -day basis because as you know there there is a lot of impact from going through childhood abuse um, and you also have a, a handbook called breaking the cycle um, rebuilding you piece by piece yeah what exactly is is what do you mean by rebuilding you piece by piece and, and how can um, this handbook help people well basically between the those two books I wrote another book called parenting without tears and that book was all about if you've been a victim or survivor of adversity childhood abuse trauma that we if you choose to go on and have children you might not necessarily have the skills to be the best parent you possibly want to be. So I took Chris Thiessen's parenting coach plan and turned it on its head and showed victims and survivors that if they really wanted to be the best parent they could possibly be, that they need to be guided by um, these seven principles that Chris Thiessen talks about. So I thought that was, I thought if I had that book when I become a parent, then I would have um, been able to take a lot of stress out of being a parent coming from the background that I had. So that was really important for me to get that out. And then on my journey through health and wellness and knowing the importance of um, de-stressing and knowing what stresses the mind and the body out like nutrition and fitness or lack of fitness and nutrition I came up with the idea or I created rather the cleaner living program which is all about um, positive mindset lifestyle choices how this impacts on your endocrine system which is your hormones how how your posture um, impacts on how you feel how nutrition impacts how you feel how um, exercise and de-stressing is an important component part of overall health and wellness. So I thought, you know what, again, I've got this cleaner living program. How do I get it out to as many people as I possibly can? And in particular, victims and survivors that have gone through trauma um, so they can get help. So if they haven't got the money to go and see a therapist, or if they've gone through therapy and they are um, looking to improve their health and wellness, how can I help that client group? Because again, I'm always looking at myself and how, what help do I need and where can I access that help? Is that help available? And if, if not, what can I do to provide it? So this handbook is all about victims and survivors in particular, about regaining their health and their wellness. So it's rebuilding them piece by piece so putting you back mentally physically and emotionally and making you the happiest and the healthiest you can be bearing in mind what you've gone through and can we talk a little bit about body image because i'm interested sure. to know if your past experience obviously you said you had suffered with an eating disorder as well yeah if that affected your the way you feel about your body image um body image right because of abuse I always covered up my body anyway um never wore fitted clothes never wore dresses always wore tracky bottoms t-shirts um fleeces because I know I now know that's all part of protecting yourself and making yourself not attractive to the opposite sex so that you don't attract anything sexual um so that's how I used to dress um I used to wear trouser suits to work rather than skirts um, and um, heels because, again, I didn't want that attention being drawn to myself. Um, so as far as body image, I never looked in the mirror and thought, you're fat, you're thin, you're this, you're that. But in a way, I did because I covered myself up. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I've never been one for 
doing a lot with my hair or makeup because again it's all about you're attracting attention to yourself again but I can honestly say now and I have been very comfortable in my skin for a very very long time I haven't been bulimic for years um, because as I as I progressed through my life and I started um, as I said start getting those promotions passing exams getting to where I wanted to be, meeting my goals, helping others, helped me build, rebuild my self-esteem and it helped me feel valued and it helped me feel um, uh, like I was really needed. So it, it, that's what drives me to be completely honest and blunt. When people need me, I feel like I can really add value and um, it it keeps me on the straight and narrow and it, it just makes me feel really good. So how do you feel about yourself now? And are you still going through any issues like having therapy or anything? Yeah, I'm having therapy. I renewed my therapy about six months ago because... Oh, um, 18 months ago, I joined um, the Independent Inquiry into Child Sexual Abuse as a consultant um, from a, um, an input from a victim and survivor's perspective into all their work that they do. Um, and as a result of that, you're making yourself vulnerable and you're putting yourself out there and um, you do get attacked from different people for putting yourself out there above a parapet because believe it or not Nicola there's a few people out there in the world that believe that I'm in this for fame and money it couldn't be further from the truth um that's disgusting I know it um if anyone truly knows me they know that I'm in it to help other people and I've spent a huge sum of my own money doing that um I don't make any money from any of my books or anything. It's all ploughed back into the charity that I've now got. Um, and everything I do 24-7, every minute I'm awake, even in my sleep, I'm thinking about how can I help similar um, people in similar situations to me. That's my whole life. That's what I do. I live and breathe this. So because of that, that impacts me. Um, it impacts my mental health and my physical health. So I have to keep myself healthy and well. And that means I have to follow my own advice. I have to eat nutritionally well. I have to do physical activity. Um, but now my physical activity is not high impact. It's walking. It's being out in nature. It's doing Pilates. It's doing things like that. It's, it's spending time on my own and reflecting and meditating. It's... Um, also um therapy where i can talk to someone on a weekly basis about absolutely anything that i'm thinking or feeling so i can offload what it is that's going on for me on a daily basis because at the same time i imagine you are like a counselor for many other people who will open up to you because of you speaking out about your own story so you yeah. must need to like you said offload that onto somebody else as well just to uh take some in and get some out if that makes sense yeah, it makes absolute sense, Nicola, and you've, that's, you've nailed it on the head. Um, because I'm out there speaking about the impact of childhood abuse on mental and physical health, I do have, and I mean it's daily, other victims and survivors contacted me saying, where can they get help? How can they get better? Um, can I tell, can I share my story with you? Can, can this happen? Can that happen? And... Um, yeah, and, and it's never ending. And you know what, that's fine. But I do have to take myself away from from social media every, every now and then, and just go, Chris, if you're not healthy and well yourself, you are not in a place to help anybody else. So my mental and physical health has to come first. My family are all part of that. And when I'm strong enough, then I'm out back on social media helping whoever I can. And I can't help everybody. I'm not going to make everybody happy. I'm going to get some people's backs up with what I'm doing. And I'm also going to make a few enemies because they don't want me out there speaking about the impact of childhood abuse and um, this, that and the other. But I can honestly say 
to everybody out there um, that I'm not going to shut up and I'm not going to stop. And if anything, I'm just getting stronger. And the more I'm told not to do something, the more I will go out there and do it. <laughs> and, you know, you sound obviously so strong and passionate about what you're doing. Do you, what, what makes you so strong? Um, the fact that I, I do and am helping people. Um, as I said, there's a few people out there that say I'm not. But I also, for every one person that says that, I've got 10 more people saying that I am. And when I, do you know Dax Moy, Nicola? I think you do, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Dax turned around and said to, not just me, but whoever was in his group once, um, we did this um exercise called the uh when you die what do you want people to say about you and that got me thinking and i want people when i die to say her life mattered she came into this world to do something and that's what keeps me focused that's what keeps me strong and that's what keeps me motivated and moving forward when they talk about your passion and your purpose this is mine yeah. I really want to make what I went through count for something. And this is what I do every day, whether it's training the police, social services, talking in schools, talking to people like yourself, writing blogs, sharing stuff. Everything is about moving forward and not letting what happened to me define me and showing other people that what they've gone through doesn't need to define them and that they can also move forward. But we've all got a different path we need to follow. No one's journey is going to be exactly the same, but I just want to show people that there's hope and there is help out there and they just need to be brave. They need to speak up when they can and they need to reach out and ask people for help when they're ready. So do you think sometimes passion comes from anger? Because obviously yeah. <laughs> when you've suffered with something, you feel can feel very angry about what's happened to you or about or against your abuser. Yeah, you know what? I think it's absolutely driven me to where I am today, that anger. So instead of being angry at, yeah, I was angry at the perpetrator, still am, perpetrators, but I still am. But... I can't take it out on them. There's laws in this country to protect people. Um, and if I was to do something towards one of them, I'm only harming myself because I'll be the one doing time. So that is not an option. Also, um, if you are angry and you internalise it, you're going to be self-sabotaging yourself. So yeah. like when I was bulimic, I was hurting myself. I wasn't hurting anyone else. When people self-harm, they're hurting themselves. When they drink too much or take drugs, they're hurting themselves. So that's internalizing that anger on themselves. I don't deserve that. You don't deserve that. They don't deserve that. So my anger, I'm putting that energy into making change and moving it all forwards. You're doing amazing work. And um, I've been following, obviously, your blogs and posts and things, and you do talk about some controversial topics as well. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and I saw a post that you were talking about um, the kids in school and sometimes even now, although you, you feel that you're healed and you've had therapy or you're having therapy, you still sometimes are taken right back to where you were and, and it's still a traumatic time for you. Or you were, yeah. you were crying because the kids in the school were excited and having a good time. And yeah. it made you realise that you, you didn't have that good time. Yeah. Do you think that these kind of episodes will always come up for you? Or do you think there will one day be a, a complete peace from it all? I, I believe that you will never fully 100% heal from what you've been through. But that doesn't mean to say that you need to be stuck in your thoughts and your feelings. So when these things happen... So that was like a trigger or a flashback, whatever you want to call it. When these things happen, it's important that you're able to analyse it and defuse it and understand what it means for you right now and try and take all the emotion out of it so that it just becomes a, a memory and it doesn't impact you anymore. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
And that is why it's so important for victims and survivors to have access to specialist support therapies, not just six sessions of CBT, but ongoing trauma-informed specialist support. And that is what I campaign for and what I fight for. So can you talk to us about your charity? What is it called? Um, it's called Survivors of Abuse, SOB. And again, that was a double entendre. So basically, what I was thinking is sob no more, as in, you know, get yeah. let's try and get you moving forward, or son of a bitch, whichever way you want to look <laughs> at it. All right. Um, so, um, and this, the charity was set up to run workshops that are going to empower victims and survivors to reclaim their lives through healthy, happy mindset, outlook, lifestyle, through good choices that are going to empower them and enrich them and make them healthier and make them happier. That is what the charity is all based around. So releasing the shame of childhood abuse, um, improving your self-esteem and then health and wellness at the end of all of this. But it's all interconnected. So it's almost like a journey of workshops to go through um, and then that will help you on your way. It, it might not cure you and for some people it might set them back because they need that really one-to-one -one intensive therapy. But for a lot of people it will help them understand exactly what they're going through and make them realise that they're not on their own and that they can actually move forwards from what they're maybe stuck with or um, that there is life after abuse. I think sometimes, as you just said, that you take a step back. I think sometimes you do have to go backwards to go forwards. Like like you had the many years that you were uh, focused on all of your training for your accountancy. And it yeah. was only when you had your child that then all the feelings and emotions started coming back to you and you realised. And yeah. I think sometimes people do that, get so busy or, or focus on something else or have a disorder, which is what I was talking about, having all those different layers and eating yeah. disorder or anxiety or depression or whatever. And it's only once you get out of that, you can you have to almost peel off the plaster, feel it again and go through it to then get over it. Yeah, again, I agree with you with that. Um, you know, when you come to a place in your life where what you've been through is affecting you on a day-to-day -day basis. So your thought, every thought that you have, every feeling that you have is really impacting you on a day-to-day -day basis. You need to be able to walk through what is going on for you. And that involves having a specialist with you to help you analyze, work through and move forward. So it is like taking that plaster off and really dealing with what, you're going through you don't need to go back to the specific like abusive event but dealing with your your thoughts and your feelings about what you went through yeah. has to be dealt with in order for you to move forward and I truly believe that so I know you, you do a lot of campaigns and most recently there's this sexual abuse and violence awareness week yes what can we do to um, help raise awareness and how can we help more um, I think we need to make society as a whole understand how pervasive child abuse is within our society. We need to be able to speak about it like we do cancer now. You know, remember what one time cancer, it, the word scared people to death, didn't it? We yeah. couldn't discuss it. And now everybody speaks about cancer as if it's a common cold because it's so common. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we need to be able to do with child abuse and its impact we need to be able to talk about it and not pretend it's this dirty disgusting thing that we just want to sweep under the carpet and forget about because it's too uncomfortable so we need to be able to speak about it we need to not normalize it but but allow our children to to speak up and speak out and and make them feel that they are able to do that um and also if Get involved in conversations, you know, retweet and tweet and share posts if it's a good discussion and whether you truly believe that it will help. Mm -hmm. um, and just the more people like us, Nicola, that come out and share our stories, there's always one person that you will help, always. 
And I think that is one of the ways that we can do it, you know, is just by breaking the silence, breaking the cycle and just keep the conversation open and moving forwards. So can you tell us then what's next for you and where can we hear more about you? Right. Next for me is basically carrying on with what I'm doing, um, working as a consultant for ICSA, um, really putting a lot of time and effort into my charity and getting that up and running. So we are launching officially in October, on October the 14th. So I'm working on that at the moment. And also, I'm now collaborating with another charity called One in Four to actually run my um, health and wellness workshops. So that's where I'm at at the moment. And that's taking a lot of time and energy. I'm also doing my GP referral course and my mental health level four so that I can really be in the top of my game for all of this. Mm -hmm. People can contact me or find me on um, Facebook under Chris Tuck. on uh, Twitter, Chris Tuck, WWHF. And if anyone's interested in any of the books, they're all available on Amazon under Chris Tuck. Brilliant. And I'll be leaving all of the links in the show notes as well so people can just click on that to find it easily. Lovely. Thank you, Nicola. That's much appreciated. Thank you so much for being on today. And I'm going to have to cut it off there because sadly I was a bit late starting in this <laughs> no worries. school run now. So um, Yeah, same here. <laughs> yeah, but I really, really appreciate you being on, Chris. And I just know that you're going to help a lot of people as always. So, Nicola, I just want to thank you for giving me airtime and for having this conversation. And hopefully this podcast will help one person even if it does we've done our job if you like this episode don't forget to subscribe and leave nicola a review on itunes you can also check out the show notes and get other free content on her website fustalfit.co.uk if you'd like to contact nicola email nicola at fustalfit.co.uk